We've been in a study of the book of James for the past few weeks. We're going to continue that on today. If you want to open your Bibles to James chapter 2, you can keep your finger there. We'll be bouncing around some other places in the New Testament today. We'll be staying completely in the New Testament. But as we get started, I want to show you a video my son found, Eli, found just a few weeks ago, and he emailed it to me and said, Dad, you got to use this for your study of the book of James. In order to understand this, let me remind you that James is the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mother, not the same father. We've talked a lot about that as we've been getting into this study. So if you weren't aware of that, this video will make a little more sense to you. This is a Christian comedian named Michael Jr. Watch what he has to say. I get a lot of material. I read the Bible a lot, and I was reading. You know, somebody's going to have to back me up on this, so you're going to think I made it up for the sake of the joke. How many people know Jesus had a little brother? Right, anybody know his name? What's his name? James. I was reading that. I was like, wow. How much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times did he have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because <laughs> you know everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do. But he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. <laughs> Remember the wedding banquet? Right? Jesus turned water into wine. Right? It was delicious. Everybody was amazed by it. Right, but this this is a little side note. What you might not know is what they use. Right, where they got the water from was these things called water pots. And the water pots, they would set them at the door, and people would dip their hands in them before they went inside. Now they were out of wine, which means the place was full, which means the water was dirty. So he took some dirty water, made it clean and acceptable, and it was the best at the banquet, which is exactly what it does for us. But I'm thinking about James. What about the next banquet? Jesus probably wasn't there, right? They started running out of wine. I bet everybody looked at James. Hey, man, your brother was here last time we ran out of wine. I don't know. You just going to stand there with your sandals on? You're not going to make no wine? You just... And you know how little brothers are. I'm sure everywhere Jesus went, James followed him. That's what little brothers do. If Jesus went there, so did James. I bet one time, James almost drowned. That's pretty good stuff right there. <laughs> it really is. I'm going to ask Gene Oji to come up here and lead us in a time of prayer. One more time, would you thank Gene and Darlene for everything they've done these past six years? Gene, pray for this message, would you? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the time that we can be here in your house in fellowship and sing praises to you worship you and hear your word and uh, we thank you that we are also brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ because of what he done for us on the cross we honor you we give you praise father we give you praise Jesus so be with us open our hearts to what you would have us learn this morning and may the power of the Holy Spirit speak through Phil as he brings us a message in Jesus name amen amen thank you very much Gene I'm just curious. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on this. How many of you have been insulted at some point in your life? Somebody has verbally insulted you? 
Just raise your hand. All right, most of us, we know exactly what that feels like. Now, those of you that just raised your hand, how many of you, after they insulted you, maybe you were driving down the road or sitting in your living room, you thought of a wonderful comeback for that insult, but it was just too late, and you really wish that you'd have had it on the spot. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, for the next minute or two, I want to give you some good comebacks. It's, it's pretty silly, actually. I was sitting at my computer this past week, and I typed into my search engine, Goofy Insults. That led me to a website called Dumb.com, and it gave some great insults, things that you could use to refute other people. And here's just a few of them off of this list that they gave me. First one, I researched your entire family tree, and it seems you were the sap. <laughs> You are so old, even your memory is black and white. You're a person of rare intelligence. It's rare when you show any. (laughs) Oh, some of these are good. You fear success, but really you have nothing to worry about. (laughs) Brains aren't everything. In fact, in your case, they're nothing. I look into your eyes and get the feeling someone else is driving. (laughs) I love what you've done with your hair. How'd you get it to come out of just one nostril like that? (laughs) That's terrible. You are so old, the candles on your birthday cake raise the earth's temperature by three degrees. Some drink from the fountain of knowledge, but apparently you just gargled. (laughs) That's quality. If you spoke your mind, you'd be speechless. Ordinarily, people live and learn. You just live. You remind me of the ocean. You make me sick. (laughs) When they made you, they broke the mold and beat up the mold maker. This, this is one of my personal favorites. I, it, it, just transparency for you. Here you go. Are your parents siblings? <laughs> oh, man. I know you're nobody's fool, but maybe someone will adopt you. <laughs> you're as useful as an ashtray on a motorcycle. They say that two heads are better than one. In your case, one would have been better than none. They say Will Rogers never met a man he didn't like. Obviously, he never met you. (laughs) Here's one more for you. I'm looking forward to the pleasure of your company since I haven't had it yet. Let that soak in. (laughs) Oh, come on, folks. One more time. I'm looking forward to the pleasure of your company since I haven't had it yet. terrible way to end. I mean, that's some good stuff. Now, you might think to yourself, why in the world is the preacher arming us with insults? Doesn't that just fly in the face of the things that the Bible taught? Yes, it does. Jesus had a totally different way of dealing with people when they insulted him. This is the human form. We always want to have the comeback. We want to have the last word. We want to make sure that we trump anything that they had to say to us. And Jesus always trumped what the people that insulted him had to say But he didn't do it just by trying to insult them. Not at all. Jesus would cause them to think. He would get a hold of their minds and their hearts and and get deep into both of those places and change their thinking. He would challenge everything that they brought to the table. He did it beautifully. You may not realize this, but all through the New Testament, Jesus is insulted time and time again. Verbally insulted. A lot of times we believe that the only time he was ever abused was during the time of the crucifixion. And it was physical abuse with a few little insults thrown in. That's not the case. Through his entire life on this earth, Jesus put up with people mocking him and belittling him and taking cheap shots at him. That was true not only of the Pharisees, but it was true even within his own family. 
The man that wrote the book that we're reading right now, the book of James, was one of the people that would have insulted him from the time he was old enough to hear insults. That is, until he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And at that moment, it left everyone speechless. I want you to see some of the insults that he had to deal with and how he handled it. Keep your finger in James chapter 2, but go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. They were after that all the time. They wanted to trap him every opportunity they got. They set him up. They put different obstacles in front of him thinking that he would stumble over them. He never did. I want you to see how he handled this. This particular discourse has to do with the issue of paying taxes. Chapter 22, the Gospel of Matthew, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. See, that was their plan. That was their whole intention. That's what they meant to do by this next comment. Follow what happens. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, now let's stop there for just a second. One of the big mistakes that people make in studying the Bible is the removal of emotion from the passages that they read. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture and after you got done with it, thought to yourself, I have absolutely no idea what that just said? Anybody ever been there? And you've gone back and read it again and you've thought to yourself, I still have absolutely no idea what that just meant. Well, one of the ways that you could change that is by asking this baseline question. What is the primary emotion with which this passage is written? What is the primary emotion with which this passage is written? Then go back and read it again with the right emotion in the passage. When you put the emotion in there, you can begin to pull out some of the feeling. This is a perfect example in Matthew chapter 22. If we read it with what I refer to as just our biblical language or our biblical tone, you're just going to read through it almost monotone and you're going to look for some meaning and you will not find it. You have to put the emotion in here in order to understand it. Beginning with this one word that starts in the quotations for us. Teacher, they said, that was not a term of respect. That was a term dripping in sarcasm. Teacher, they said, oh, you're so great, you know everything. Why don't you try to answer this for us? Listen to what he says, or what they say. Teacher, they said, verse 16, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, Christianity, Judaism, fought against Caesar all the time. There always seemed to be a conflict between the two of them. The people of the, the religious sects didn't believe that Rome should have the power over them that they did, and they would fight it in the realm of taxes. Could you imagine people disagreeing with paying taxes to the government instead of just willingly writing the check and being thrilled with the way they handled our money? A little bit of sarcasm there, too. All right. So they're trying to trap Jesus with this question. What are you going to say about this? Now, he could have shot back at them with any number of things that came off of that list that we just read. Jesus, because he's a creator of the universe, could have come up with any number of responses that would have left them laying there speechless. He chose a different track. Verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin you used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? 
Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. He shut them down. Not with sarcasm coming back from his mouth, but rather truth coming from his mouth. He just reversed the whole thing. Now, does that mean that he agreed with everything that Caesar was doing? Not at all. But that was the rule of the land. And so Jesus said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay the taxes. End of story. And they had no comeback. Now, here's what I really want you to see out of this passage. We're not talking about taxes. We're not talking about whether we're supposed to pay the government. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. These Pharisees that were trying to trap Jesus, dripping in sarcasm, covering themselves in all kinds of different insinuations and insults that they wanted to level at the God of the universe, the creator of all that there is. These people who were non-believers stumbled almost unknowingly across some deep theology. I don't mean shallow theology. I mean extremely deep theology. Go back into this passage with me. This is verse 16 again, right at the end of it. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, they were trying to mock the Lord. They were trying to ridicule Him. And right there, they fell headfirst into some of the deepest theology anybody will ever find in the Bible. Listen to this again. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. That's deep truth about Jesus Christ. He is not swayed by the things that the world is swayed by. Jesus does not see other people the way we would see them. He pays no attention to education. He pays no attention to background. He pays no attention to wealth. He pays no attention to social status. He is not swayed by people in positions of power, nor is he swayed by people in positions of extreme poverty. He sees everybody the same. You know how Jesus sees everybody, including you? He sees you as his child. He sees you as a sinner in need of grace. He sees you as a person that he would die for. Doesn't matter all these other things. He sees you exactly like that. These Pharisees discovered it. They found it. Now, they didn't mean to, but they found it. What a great declaration about Jesus Christ. If you highlight things in your Bible or you underline things in your Bible, why don't you underline just that one sentence? Make it stand out. And maybe in the margin of your Bible, you want to write something like this, deep theology. And that's exactly what it is. It is deep theology. That's who Jesus Christ is. Now, not only is that who Jesus is, that's how he wants us to see other people too. He wants us to approach everyone in our lives the same way he does. Not swayed by men because we don't care about the things the world cares about. He just wants us to see everybody as a person that needs grace and salvation and then bring it to them because that's what he did. Now let's go to the book of James together. James would take that same teaching. Remember, he was one of the people that would mock his brother. He would take that same teaching and expound on it in chapter 2. The verses that we're about to read are a preacher's dream. That's what we would call a hermeneutically perfect passage. Meaning there's three points that are going to come out of it. There are easy points to preach, and you'll see exactly the way they break down. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let's take just the first four verses. My brothers, 
as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, do you see the way James is taking the whole idea out of Matthew chapter 22 and bringing it to light? You need to make sure that you don't fall prey to what the rest of mankind has fallen prey to. Don't show favoritism to anybody. Don't be swayed by man. You approach everybody exactly the same. There are some commentators that say when James was preaching at the church in Jerusalem, he actually did this, where he brought two people on the same service into their worship auditorium, if you will, into the the synagogue in which they were worshiping. That's probably where they were worshiping at during those times. Synagogues were everywhere. So the new church would have started in some old Jewish synagogues. He brought two people in dressed completely different, and he watched to see how people responded to them. Now, whether that happened or not, I don't know. That's just what some commentators have to say about it. There's no church historian that says that James did that, but there have been a number of preachers since him that have, and they have all seen exactly the same thing. When the person dressed in fine clothes, obviously a person of position and power walks in, they receive special attention. When the person that looks like they have just come from underneath the bridge walks in, people look at them almost with an air of, why are you in our church? It's happened forever. James is trying to correct it. Jesus figured out how to correct it. He was no respecter of person. He saw everyone the same. Everyone the same. And Jesus approached them all with exactly the same mentality. You're a sinner in need of grace and salvation. James is saying, make sure that you don't get caught in that trap. Because if you do, people are going to be leaving again. They're going to be taken off. And you don't want that to happen. Interestingly enough, at another point when the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, they would set him up believing that they had him in a corner and Jesus would come out helping them understand something that I would refer to as the deity of who he was. Or in James's particular situation, the deity of Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll go back to the Gospels again, this time to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Pharisees are trying to find out which one of the Old Testament laws Jesus says is the most important. This is what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now Jesus would put those two things together to describe the deity of Christianity. You have to love the Lord your God first. You have to give your life to him first. And once you have done that, it should transform the way you see everyone else. Then love your neighbor as yourself. One of the big problems that the Pharisees had is they were perpetually trying to trap Jesus with his mouth. They wanted his words to become the points that he would stumble over. They should have been paying attention to other body parts. Instead of just listening to his mouth and watching for what would come out when they would try to trap him, they should have paid attention to his hands. Because his hands would describe exactly who he was. Now, I would offer to you that the same thing is true for us. We can say all kinds of different things. Our mouths can describe certain beliefs, but our hands will actually demonstrate the truth of those beliefs. 
we need to pay attention to our hands. Imagine it like this, if you would. Picture a Hollywood producer coming to you and saying that they want to do a documentary on your hands. They're doing a documentary on everybody's hands. They want to do one on yours. And you think to yourself, well, that's kind of a silly movie. What are you talking about? So they tell you that they want to capture your life through the use of your hands. They're just going to do a documentary, a film solely on that. It's baffling to you, but then they start to lay out for you the first scene. They're going to capture the picture of a a little newborn baby's hand as it's just unfolding. Then they're going to zoom away from that and... The next scene will have those fingers, little baby fingers, wrapping around the hand of their mother or the fingers of their mother. Then they'll zoom away from that, and the next scene will show those same fingers now just a little bit older, holding on to a spoon and then holding on to a chair as they learn how to feed themselves and then how to stand. And everything is being demonstrated exactly the same in your movie as well as everybody else's movie. As you get older, the scenes are going to change a little bit. They're going to find that those hands can be used as a a means of expressing love. Maybe as they're stroking the face of their daddy. Or maybe they'll they'll show love as they're reaching out to somebody else and, and just pulling them up as they're struggling to stand. Those types of scenes are very visible in the life of little children. But it's not just the affection side of the hands that they want to capture. They also want to show the aggressive side of little kids as they don't pull their brother up, but rather shove their brother down. Or maybe they reach out with their hands to take a toy away from somebody else that had taken it from them and fights ensue because of it. And then as those hands turn into teenage hands, they begin to show a few other things like the aggressiveness that comes from those hands as they're balled up in fists, striking out at somebody else, and God forbid as they get older, striking out at a spouse, a husband, or a wife. Or they show those hands as, as the fingers are used to communicate certain emotions. Fill in the blanks. We'll just leave it at that. And then they want to capture some other sides of it as well, where those hands are used to express love as they're older, as they maybe give a gift away to somebody else, or they slide a ring onto a finger, or they are folded in prayer. Maybe they want to capture a few other things as they walk down a street together holding the hand of a loved one. Our hands communicate a great deal about our beliefs. Our hands communicate a great deal about the convictions that exist within us. That was true in Jesus' life. The Pharisees were trying to trap him with his mouth. They should have been watching his hands. If they watched his hands, they would have seen who he really was. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're still in the Gospels. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew again. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. See why they should have been paying attention to his hands? Jesus was touching people that nobody else would touch. Leprosy was a horrible disease. If you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were banned from the community that you lived in, never to go home again, never to be around your family again, never to be able to work in the places that you have worked, really never to be in society, and certainly never to be touched because they believed that leprosy was a communicable disease that was passed on by touch. So a leper was sent out into these colonies where they were surrounded by other people with leprosy, the outcasts. 
One of them came to Jesus. What a bold move. Asked Jesus if he would heal him. If you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus said, I am. And then he did the most remarkable thing. He touched him. Jesus' hands communicated his beliefs. Jesus' hands communicated how he felt not only about other people, but how he felt about God. So do yours. The deity of Christ in your life is demonstrated by your hands, much more so than your mouth. Is he really your Lord and Savior? Is he really the one that you have given your life to? If so, how do your hands reflect that? Your hands will demonstrate much more than your mouth about the deity of Christ. James would say, when those two people walk into the congregation, do you, do you extend your hand to one and not to the other? Are you swayed by men because of their influence? Are you swayed by women because of their positions? Are you swayed by people the way the world is swayed by them? Or do you extend your hand to both? Your hands demonstrate the deity of Christ in your life, possibly more than anything else. What do you do with your hands? Let's go back to the book of James now. You see, once we figure out the deity of Christ in our life, it will lead us to a place where we will be able to make, just like Jesus, grace choices, grace decisions. This is verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has God or has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? The rich were self-sufficient people in those days, much like they are today. Some of the most difficult people to lead to Christ are the wealthy. They're the ones that are slandering everybody else, lording positions over everybody else. Yet they're the ones that we want to mimic more than anyone else. That's the goal that we have set for ourselves. I want to be wealthy. I want to be rich. I want to be like all these other people. And it leads you down a horrible, horrible path. Oftentimes, the path that it takes you down is this one, where you begin to look at other people that have not achieved the same social status that you have or the same economic status as you have, and you do nothing but look down upon them. And judge them. So James is saying, you have to learn just like Jesus did, how to make grace choices where everybody else is concerned. Rather than measuring them on social status and economic status, you measure them just as people. That's all that matters. In fact, that's how you found your way into the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that for just a second. You found your way into the kingdom of God because of Jesus' grace choices, he looked at you, a Gentile, and said, I will love you. You're not a Jew. The Jews are God's chosen people. Jesus said, I will love you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 has Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's the order of things. You are second in the line of grace, but second is the same as first in the line of grace. Grace choices sees everyone exactly the same. I'll illustrate for you from the Gospel of Luke. Let's go there together. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. 
At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. That's the Jews. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That's us. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads, the country lanes, and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now let's break that down together. Can you imagine being invited to a banquet by God himself and making excuses for why you can't go? I'm too busy. I've got to work. I just made an investment. I've got to go check that out. Oh, I'm getting married. I I don't have enough time to do that. Can you imagine people making excuses to not be with God? Happens all the time. Lord invites us into a banquet. The Lord invites us into his presence and we make all kinds of excuses for why we can't be there. The Jews did that. When the time was right and the banquet was set and Jesus Christ had come, God said to the Jews first, here's my son, here's the Messiah you've been waiting for. All you have to do is come to him. And they said, oh no, that's not who we were looking for. Oh no, we're too busy. We can't do that. Oh no, look at him. He's not the king that we thought we should have. They made excuse after excuse after excuse for why they could not believe in Jesus. And so God said, that's it, I'm done with you. And that's how we got there. We're the blind, the lame, the weak, the Gentiles. We are the second invitation. You are a second invitation person. But you want to know the cool thing? You're at a banquet with the king. You're there. I'm there. How cool is that? Jesus looked at us and said, you know what? If these other people don't want to come, I'm going to bring these folks in. Not only the Gentiles, but the Samaritans, the half-breeds, people that nobody wanted to be around were welcomed into this feast. They were there. We're there. Because of the grace choice of Jesus Christ, that if those that he came to save would not accept, he would not let salvation stop there. He gave it to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's cool. That's how we got there. That's good stuff. I have no problem whatsoever being a second invitation person. Spent most of my life that way, and I'll spend eternity that way too. That's totally okay. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for me. Now, here's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to approach people the same way. To start looking at the the lame, the weak, the broken those that are struggling, those that are hurt, and bring them into the kingdom. And you can only do that through grace choices. I've got to be able to love everybody. doesn't matter their socioeconomic levels. doesn't ma- matter their education. I was in a meeting this past week with some guys sitting around a table, and for some reason they were sharing their resumes and their educational backgrounds and so on, and I quickly realized I was the most uneducated person sitting at that table. That, that's a good feeling to have. I was like, okay, yeah, you've done this, you've done that, you have this degree, you have that degree. They said, well, what about you, Phil? I said, I barely graduated, thanks for asking. And we just moved on. I was the most uneducated person sitting there. Do you know what? Jesus Christ does not care. He does not care. And neither should we. Neither should we. We just have to approach people. But grace choices get messed up all the time for people. 
all the time. And it isn't just these socioeconomic things, this measure of success that messes people up. Sometimes it's the hurts. Sometimes it's people coming and saying, I don't want to share the kingdom of heaven with certain individuals because of the things that they have done. I don't want to spend my time in eternity with these people because of their background. I don't like what they've done with their life. My friends, I want you to know this. Listen to this. Write this down. The only provision that God has ever made for our past is the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's enough. It's enough. And so when we look at other people's past and we measure them solely by their past, by the sins that had defined them for a long time, we are missing the whole idea of grace choices. If they have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ is enough for us, it's enough for them. And that's all that matters. That's it. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is enough. It might baffle you to know that on a fairly regular basis, the elders are approached by people in the church with this simple request. They say, hey, so-and-so has been coming to church, and I don't like that because they hurt me at some time in the, the past. Maybe it was recently, maybe it was a long time ago, but I don't want them in my church, so would you tell them they can't come? That, that actually happens fairly regularly. Would you tell them that they can't be here because this is my church and I don't want them in my church because of whatever the, the case might be? You know, our elders have never once gone to anybody and said, hey, you can't attend church. They've never done that. Now, they've helped work out some difficult situations, and I'm glad they have, but they've never said, don't come to church. They just don't do that, and they shouldn't, because the cross of Jesus Christ is enough. It's enough. And grace choices help us figure that out. I want you to see a little more deep theology about Jesus before we move on into the convicting part of James's message. This is John chapter 7, verse 24. John chapter 7, verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. That's just good teaching. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. That's a grace choice. I will choose grace. I will choose what Jesus chose. That's a good choice. Now let's go back to James chapter 2. Last point. Remember, three points. Hermeneutical dream. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now here's the thing. If we can figure out the deity of Christ in our life, and it leads us to a place where we're making grace choices, where other people are concerned, we've got it figured out. But if we don't, follow this, if we don't, we have positioned ourselves for judgment from God. Now, don't you wish that didn't exist in the Bible? If you can't figure out the deity of Christ in your life, and it doesn't lead you to grace choices, it positions you to be judged by God in accordance with the way you have judged other people. That's difficult teaching. Now, we've looked at some great theology, some wonderful theology. This is just flat-out difficult teaching. Listen again to what James says right at the end of this. 
Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So those grace choices, they start to bleed over into our lives too. How we see other people begins to impact how God sees us. That's tough teaching. And I don't mean to deny it in any way, shape, means, or form. That's just tough teaching. So here's what James wants us to do. He wants us to make sure that our words, our actions, and our attitudes get transformed. We have to begin with our words. Listen again. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. So we have to start transforming our language. We have to transform the way we talk about other people. We have to transform the way we talk to other people. The Bible has some great teaching that goes along with this. Let me show you one for each one of these areas. Keep your finger there in James chapter 2, but let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Grace choices lead to a transformation of language. It leads to a transformation of how we speak, not only of other people, but to other people. So James wants you to know, if Jesus Christ is really your Lord and Savior, and you have worked out the deity of Christ in your life, and it has led you to grace choices, your mouth will reflect it. But he doesn't stop there. He says, speak and, did you catch what the next word was? Act. So our actions have to be transformed as well. How we act towards other people. Now remember the whole idea of your hands? How you reach out to other people, what you convey with your hands and with your actions demonstrates the deity of Christ and grace choices within your life. So it's not enough to have your words transformed, your actions have to be transformed. We're going to go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes these words. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed... Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now that's your actions. Verse 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. Our actions have to be transformed just like our words. It is all part of the deity of Jesus in our lives. Because of our relationship with Him, these things have to happen. But before your words can be transformed and your actions can be transformed, it is necessary for your attitude to be transformed. That's why James started the way he did. He said if a person says that they haven't committed adultery but they've committed murder, they're a lawbreaker. It's an attitude issue. The New Testament is all about the changing of attitude. The Old Testament, the law, was all about the changing of actions. The New Testament is all about the changing of attitude because it's in our heart that we decide what we're going to do. That's where all of our actions are already determined. So Jesus says, we've got to change the attitude so that the actions and the words can be changed. That's the right order of things. The only way to do that to determine how Jesus lived and make a concerted effort to live just like him. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and to every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's how it works. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's a daily choice. That is a daily choice. The only way that we can do it is by getting actively involved in praying for that transformation. I woke up the other day, I don't know why. Um, This was Thursday morning. I woke up just angry. I don't know why. I, I really can't answer the question. I was just angry when I woke up. So I'm laying in bed saying, Lord, I don't know what's going on in my spirit, but I'm angry for some reason. I need you to transform that before I even get out of bed. So would you take that away? And God did. You want to know how? All of a sudden, the song that we were singing just this morning popped into my head. King of heaven, come down. And I just had the words of that song running through my mind over and over and over and over again. That was God's response to my prayer. Lord, I'm wrestling with this particular thing, and God replaced it. You know that I believe in a thing called replacement theology, where we address sin and we replace it with something good. If you've worshipped with us long at all, you know about replacement theology. Well, that's exactly what God did for me. He took away the anger, and He reminded me of who He was. I spent the rest of the day having a great time. Good day. I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff, because I said, Lord, transform the attitude. Otherwise, had I not done that, I could have approached the whole day just a miserable individual to be around because I let that emotion govern everything for the day. That's how you transform attitude. You identify what it is, you confess it to Christ, and you trust that He can transform it. And once you've confessed it to Him, you just leave it there, and He'll take care of it. I don't care what attitude it is that you're dealing with. If you deal with anger, then you confess that to Christ and you trust that He can transform it. If you deal with depression, you confess it to Christ and you trust that He can transform it. If you are a contrary individual that's always argumentative, confess it to Christ. If you're a judgmental individual, confess it to Christ and trust that He can transform it. If in nature you are a gossip, confess it to Christ and trust that He can transform it. If you are judgmental, confess it to Christ and trust that He can transform it. It. it has long been said that our convictions govern our conduct. I want you to flip that piece of logic over and think about it. Your conduct reveals your convictions. So you want to make sure that you have allowed your attitudes to be transformed by Christ because your conduct will reveal how you really feel about Christ. Happens for everyone. I don't care who you are. Your conduct reveals your convictions. So let them be transformed. So we close this out. Let me illustrate for you. Kind of a cool way, not my illustration. We have three children. Our oldest son, Nick, is 21 years old. Then there's Eli. He is 18 years old, graduating from high school this week. Then there's my little baby daughter sitting up here on the front row with her mother. Her name's Katie. She's 17. She's not going to be allowed to graduate from high school. She will live with us forever. For each one of our kids for their 16th birthday, we offered them a kind of unique party. What we did was ask them to sit down and make a list of men and women that have influenced their lives and their faith. And they did, each one of them. 
they made a long list of people, and then we sent a letter to each of those individuals, and we asked them to write a letter to our kids and then come and share it with them. It was words of wisdom that they would impart to a 16-year-old young man or woman that would carry them through life. And I'm telling you, some of those letters, they're just, they are rich in wisdom. Bill Armstrong Sr. wrote to both of our boys, and he wrote not identical letters, not at all. They're different letters, but there is a theme in each one of them. The first time I heard it when Nick was 16, I thought, that is really cool. When Eli turned 16, I didn't say anything to Bill. I was just hoping he would write, in essence, the same thing to him, and he did. I want you to listen to just an excerpt from Bill Sr.'s letter. As you prepare to go out on your own, you must expect to be bombarded by an ungodly world. You'll be tempted in ways that you can't imagine at this point in your life. The good news is this. You've been in training for this contest for 16 years. I refer you to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 12. Now here's, here's this part I want you to hear. Treat people in the same way that you like to be treated. I love the following quote. The measure of a man is how he treats someone who can't possibly do him any good. I probably use it too often, but it's a good reminder on relationships. Also see Philippians chapter 2, 3, and 4, which reads in part, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And Galatians 6, 9, and 10, in part, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Now, here's the thing that makes that so powerful. Bill Armstrong Sr. wrote those words. He lives those words. Bill lives those words. For him to write that, it isn't some theory that he was just putting down with pen on paper. It is his life. His conduct reveals his convictions. That's the way it should work. Bill wrote that to both of my boys. I am so happy he did because it comes out of his heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. And out of the conduct of our lives, our convictions are revealed. James says, You be careful of showing favoritism because by doing so, you will deny some people the opportunity to hear the grace-filled message of Jesus Christ. You're a second invitation person. Why don't you let everybody else have the same privilege? Amen? Just stand and pray with us. Father in heaven, it's, it's interesting when we look into some of the tough teaching of Scripture and have the ability, the opportunity to find ourselves there. In today's particular passage, we find ourselves as second invitation people. Thank you, Lord, for not just shutting down the party or canceling it because some people rejected. Thank you, Father, for extending the invitation to the rest of us. Lord, I am so glad you did. I know this room is full of a whole bunch of second invitation Gentiles that are glad you did. Thank you for that. But as we look into that passage, we see not only the invitation that brought us into your presence, we also see some great teaching that helps us bring others to that same place. It's difficult, Lord, just like it was 2,000 years ago when James wrote about it. It's difficult today for us to do that very thing. Our natural default settings are to try to hurt people when they hurt us. You didn't do that. To insult people when they insult us. You didn't do that. Instead, Father, you just responded with grace. Help us do the same. I want to pray this morning for anybody that has not accepted your invitation. 
Maybe they've been making excuses for a while. Lord, let the excuses come to an end so that they can be with you, not just today, but forever. Would you dry up the the well of excuses that we all have that we might be with you today and, in fact, forever? It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.